Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in uh, for the past couple of months uh, in the book of Exodus. And if you're just joining in with us, uh, it's a fairly well-known story, but where, where you're finding us this morning is the people of Israel have come out of Egypt through the plagues. Uh, God has just, in Exodus chapter 14, led them uh, through the Red Sea, miraculously dividing the sea, uh, leading them away from Pharaoh's army and then causing the sea to collapse uh, back on their pursuers. And so Exodus 15 uh, finds us with the people of Israel standing there on the far shore of the Red Sea, continuing their journey. And one of the things that we've said throughout uh, this series in Exodus is we want to look at the ways. We don't want to do this simply as a study about uh, what God did back then for those people, uh, but to find our story in the Exodus story to look at all of the ways in which we find ourselves in this story. The New Testament writers over and over again liken our salvation in Jesus to being like the salvation of the Israelites in Moses, that we too are enslaved to sin and sickness and death and sorrow, that Jesus comes, meets us in our land of slavery, leads us out towards freedom and towards our inheritance with God forever. And so we'll see again today how we find our story in the saving story of the Exodus. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word together? I'll read today from Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. 
You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, where you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and the horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the great waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing scene, isn't it? You've got all of the people of Israel, thousands of men and women and children, standing there by the side of the sea, standing there at the beach. And behind them, under the sea, is what's left of Pharaoh's army, perhaps some of the debris washing up on the shore, Ahead of them is the land of Canaan that they've been promised to, the place where God has told them he's taking them. And there in the midst of it, they burst spontaneously into song. Moses and his sister Miriam begin singing this song. Uh, Women begin uh, coming out with tambourines and dancing there by the side of the sea as they erupt in this joyful, worshipful moment of song before God. Sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. It's a pattern that we see actually over and over in the Bible that God acts, God shows up, God intervenes by his grace, gives grace to his people, and then his people respond in song. They respond in joy and in gratitude and in worship. We see it later in Judges chapter 4. God gives victory to Deborah, uh, the judge over Israel, and then she sings a song about it. We see it uh, in Luke chapter 1 in the incarnation, right? God promises Mary uh, that she will bring his salvation into the world, and then she bursts out into song, the Magnificat or Mary's song. God acts, God gives his people grace, and then they respond with gratitude, with joy, and with worship. There's this moment in Paul's letter to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5. Paul asks the Galatians this question. What has happened to all your joy? What's happened to all your joy? If the Christian life, if life with God is meant to be this kind of joyful response to God's grace, what's happened to the joy that you ought to be feeling in your life with God? It's a biting diagnostic question, one that uh, cuts to the heart. Are we experiencing joy? Maybe the answer today, if someone were to ask you what has happened to all of your joy, you would say, well, 2020 happened (laughs) to all of my joy, right? I was humming along, 2019 was going, went well, 2020 started, and then bam, COVID 
and social unrest and election season and all of it that just drags on. But the deeper answer, right, there's always going to be trying circumstances, right? The, the Christian church around the world is exposed to trying circumstances, to hardships, to anxieties, to worries. And so the deeper answer is that we lose sight of our joy when we lose sight of the goodness of God to us, when we lose sight of God's grace in the world and in our lives. And certainly, if you're anything like me, uh, my eyes have moved over the course of this year, uh, oftentimes off of the goodness of God and his promises towards us, often off, off of his incredible grace in our lives to my anxieties, to my worries, to my fears. Now, there's certainly room for sorrow and struggle in the Christian life, right? The Christian life is not always uh, one of exuberant joy. Uh, right? Sometimes we suffer and struggle and worry, and God invites us to bring that to him. But we do need to have room in our Christian life for exuberant, overwhelming joy, for gratitude spontaneously expressed. Right? This, is, uh, this is a Presbyterian church, um, which means that you have not often seen dancing in tambourines. Right? Uh, Presbyterian, that a Presbyterian known uh, for a stoic reserve in worship. That a Presbyterian amen is often just a nod of the head and maybe, maybe a mm, mm. Right? That's about as exuberant uh, as a lot of us get. Right? In the emotional uh, crayon box of our lives, we operate in like two colors, beige and uh, off beige. Right? But the Christian life is meant to be an invitation to joy. An invitation to gratitude and to wonder. In fact, you could say that the Christian life itself is a life of gratitude. One of the most subtle and sad losses of life in our secular age is the loss of gratitude. Right? That we might experience happiness when something good happens to us, but rarely gratitude. G.K. Chesterton English writer of the last century said this, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. Right? It's that moment when you uh, receive good news at work. It's that moment when you fall in love, the moment when you hold your child for the first time and you look for someone to thank for this incredible outpouring of blessing, but your worldview has already cut off the prospect of there being a source, of there being someone to thank. The gospel calls us back to gratitude. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of the great uh, Reformation-era catechisms or question-and-answer summaries of the Christian life, asks this, what, what is necessary for you to know to live and to die in the joy of this comfort? And it answers three things, how great my sin and misery are, Second, how I am set free from all my sin and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Guilt, our need of deliverance. Grace, God's delivering us from our own brokenness, our own sin. And then gratitude, how we're to order our entire life towards it. German theologian Karl Barth said this, 
The only answer to grace is gratitude. Grace always demands the answer of gratitude. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. This gets at the heart of some of what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 1 when he says that, that what's, what can be known about God is evident in creation, right? That he shows us his goodness in creation itself in that sin is the human lack of gratitude, right? And so we neither acknowledge God in our hearts, Romans 1.21, or gave thanks to him for his blessings. And so part of what the gospel seeks to rescue us from is from our own sense of entitlement, from our own sense of having accomplished everything that we need in our lives, and to open us back to the right, proce- uh, the right posture of a creature before the Creator, one of real and abiding gratitude. And so in this passage of gratitude and worship, we see how real worship, real gratitude is meant to work. And I'll use those two words interchangeably because often in the New Testament, giving thanks and worship are used synonymously, right? Paul calls us to to give thanks to the Lord. And what he means is worship, that worship is a giving thanks to God. And so uh, in this passage, we see how we're to do that. First, we give thanks to God for what he has done, right? Really, I mean, the... the, uh, The entire song is a response to what God has done. But he begins, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. And then he goes on to narrate uh, Moses and Miriam together what God has done in history for his people. And from this, we learn that worship and gratitude are always a response to what God has already done. Right? It's not that if we're grateful enough, if we're worshipful enough, if we're faithful enough, then God will do something. Then God will give us grace. That God acts first and then we respond to God's action. And that gratitude from a Christian standpoint is always a response to what God has done. Contemporary accounts of gratitude are often uh, just kind of general experiences of happiness. Right, if somebody comes up to you and says, uh, you ought to have an attitude of gratitude when you're on a, you know, maybe you want to punch that person if you're having a bad day. Um, But there is this general sense uh, in the contemporary world that we ought to be grateful, that we ought to have gratitude, but it's rarely directed to the activity of God. It's rarely directed to what God himself has done and is doing in the world and in our lives. Gratitude is the act of acknowledging Uh, that we owe a debt to God, not to life, not to the universe, but to God himself who's given us life, who's put air in our lungs, who's given us uh, a beating heart in our chest, who's given us uh, relationships and a vocation and a world in which to live. It's the acknowledgement before God that we, uh, as Wendell Berry asked, "What uh, what have you got that you haven't been given? Right? Everything in our lives is a gift. It's a gift of God's creation. It's a gift of God's providence, His ongoing ordering of our lives. It's, of course, above all, the gift of redemption. Right? It's the gift that, like uh, Moses sings of God's redeeming grace, His setting His people free from slavery and captivity. 
that the, above all, the reason that we can have gratitude is because God has sent His only Son uh, into our world to take onto Himself our sin and misery so that we can be saved. The Christian life is a response to this incredible grace. Grace being God's love given freely without any hint of our deserving it, without any merit on our part, without any goodness in us that's brought it on us. The sheer freely given gift of a gift that we can never repay. The gift of Jesus does uh, call us to give our entire life as a response of gratitude. And yet with the acknowledgement that no amount of worship, no amount of faithfulness, no amount of gratitude uh, ever can repay what Jesus has given. There's something in us that doesn't like to live with this grace that can't be repaid. right? There's something in us that doesn't like to be the recipient of a gift that we can't then match in return. There's an episode of The Office in which Dwight, uh, if you remember Dwight uh, in the office, always up to some kind of scheme, uh, he brings bagels to everyone in the office. Uh, and it's a part of some scheme he has to get them to support him in getting Jim fired or something like that. And so he brings bagels for everyone, and he's constantly pointing out that now they owe him. You know, here's a bagel for you, now you owe me something good. And Andy, uh, another character in the show, this perennially polite uh, co-worker, can't bear the thought of owing Dwight anything. And so the rest of the episode, he's holding open doors for Dwight, he's bringing him his coffee, he's uh, pulling out his chair, he's buying him lunch, and then Dwight responds by doing something else nice for him. It's this constant battle of one-upsmanship because nobody wants to be in the debt of the other one. They don't want to live knowing that somebody has given them something that they can't repay. And of course, this is a silly example, but I find that operating in my own heart. There's something in me that wants to believe that I can somehow earn uh, the grace that I've been given. Maybe I couldn't do anything on the front end to occasion God to give me His grace, but I can work hard enough on the back end that He'll be glad He did. That I'll, I'll work hard enough on the back end to go, you know what? My grace wasn't wasted on Dave. He proved himself to be a good investment. He worked hard. He was a good husband. He planted a church, right? We don't like to live in debt. We don't like to live knowing that we owe an unpayable debt to someone beyond ourselves. And yet the gospel brings us into this place where everything we've received is a gift of grace, where nothing that we do can earn us out of a place of simply being a recipient, a receiver of unconditional love. So we give thanks to God for what He's done. And then we give thanks to God for who He is, which we see in what He's done. Look at the questions that Moses asks in verse 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Moses follows a path from what God has done to who God is. Right? He says that, that in God, uh, what he does and who he is are linked. 
that God shows us who he is through what he does. Think about this. We live in a world where most of us, the, the assumption is that we're on our own to form our ideas about who God is. Right? We live in a world in which our assumption is that uh, you form a God out of your ideas about God. Right? God must be all loving or all gracious. Or we say, well, I don't like the idea of God as being judgmental. Or, or I don't like the idea of there only being one God. And yet Moses says here, no, no, no. It's not up to us to figure out who God is. It's not up to us to project our desires or our hopes onto God and then make him in our image. But no, we learn who God is through what God does. Right? God doesn't want it to be a guessing game as to what he's like. God wants to enter into history. He wants to enter into each one of our lives and show us who he is and to show us what he's like. Right? If you want to know what God's like, we look at who he is and what he does. We look, of course, above all, uh, to the cross. Right? We look at Jesus to know what God is like. Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is himself the very image of the invisible God. Right? The God that you could never see. Right? The God that, that is invisible uh, and exists outside of and above time and space. Jesus is his perfect representative. The perfect image of God. So if you want to know the God who is love, who's shown himself to be love, we look to Jesus. So we give thanks for what God's done. We give thanks for who God is. And then we give thanks for what God will do. I love the turn that Moses uh, makes here in verse 13 and following. He says, you have led in your steadfast love, your faithful love, the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength. And then he goes into the people that they haven't met yet, the Canaanites, the people who are currently occupying the land where God is taking his people. And he says, they tremble as we pass by because they know that you who have led us will now lead us. Verse 17, you will bring them, that is your people, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, that you have made for your, your abode. Right, so Moses transitions from you have to you will. And he does it in this posture of worship. Right, that, that, that an acknowledgement of God's grace, living in gratitude towards God, enables us to not only look on our past with gratitude, but to look on our future with the hope of future grace. To look on our future knowing that the God who gave us grace in the past will give us grace in the future. The way that Paul puts it, how much more will not the God who didn't withhold his only son, how much more will he give you all things in Christ? Right? There is this, this how much moreness to the Christian life. That we've learned God's character by looking back. We look to the cross. We look to the exodus. We look at the way God's intervened on behalf of his people. And that frees us to look towards the future with hope. It frees us to look towards the future to know that because what God's done demonstrates who he is, that who he is will still be there tomorrow. And it'll be there the day after tomorrow. It'll be there the week after that and a year after that and a hundred years after that. Right? That God will be consistent with his gracious character in the future. One of the things that a lack of gratitude steals from us is the prospect of hope. 
right? One of the things that 2020 beats out of us is a hopeful orientation towards our future, right? It's the ability to look towards the future and not just think, oh man, how much longer? <laughs> how long, oh Lord, until a vaccine, right? It, it enables us to look towards the, the future and say, whatever 2021 brings, whatever the next week or month bring into my life, the constant that I know is God's goodness, what I know I can rely on is the God who was good to me last year, who was good to me in my past, who showed his goodness towards me once and for all on the cross, will remain good for me now and forever. And so worship, worship orients us to this big picture of who God is and how he works in our lives. And then what worship does is it makes it personal for each of us. There's a tendency in contemporary worship uh, oftentimes to, to lose ourselves in the subjective experience, right? There's a tendency to think of worship as almost entirely about me and what I'm feeling in the moment, to, to think of worship as the spontaneous expression of whatever it is that I'm feeling, and it's about me. But true biblical worship is about God. It's about who God is and what God's done and who he's shown himself to be. But it doesn't stay there, right? When we gather for worship, uh, we don't just sing a systematic theology textbook, right? We don't just sing uh, head knowledge about who God is. It's truth made personal and made ours. And we see this in the way that Moses says it in Exodus 15, after talk, starting with who God is, he says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. You notice what he says. He doesn't just say God is salvation in the abstract. He says God is my salvation. The God who is grace has become my God of grace. The God who saves sinners just doesn't do it for those other people. He's my Savior. He's my strength and my salvation. This is the, the nature of real faith. That God becomes God for us, not in the abstract, but for us as we experience Him. Jonathan Edwards said that this is the, like, you know, he said there's a difference between knowing in the abstract that honey is sweet, right? You can talk about why is honey sweet, what's the process by which honey gets sweet, where the bees get the sugar from the flowers that goes into the honey. There's a difference between knowing about the sweetness of honey and tasting honey on your tongue and it going from being something that's out there and true to being something that you're tasting of its sweetness. The psalmist invites us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let the goodness and saving power of God not be something that's out there for others, but something that you've taken into yourself is your own goodness, is your own taste of God's grace. And let it lead you into a life unlocked, set free from our own sense of self and entitlement, free to live a life of gratitude and joy and worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have become our salvation, our grace. 
Lord Jesus, we know that you are, uh, as Moses says here, the Lord is a warrior. And we know that you're a warrior because you fought for us. You fought a battle that we could never fight, a battle against Satan and sin and death. And you triumphed over the grave itself. You fight for us still. And Lord, you will one day bring this salvation to its fruition. You will bring us safely into our promised land. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us uh, to know you not in the abstract, uh, not as one who lived and died long ago, but as one who lives and reigns at the right hand of the Father, one who gives us your grace and your very self, who gives us your spirit. And so, Lord, help us to rest in your fighting for us. Help us to enjoy your grace and your goodness in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.